Thank you for joining the Product Management Mastermind, a global community of product professionals who come together to get advice, share advice, and build relationships. Today, we're going to be talking about what it means to be a successful growth PM. The format of today's discussion will start with a deep dive on the topic of how to succeed in the growth PM role, followed by some questions from our product management community, which has recently grown to over 13,000 product professionals across the globe. And then we'll wrap up with a fun rapid fire round. Before we get started, we'll do some quick intros. I'm Felix, a product manager at Google, working on Google Play monetization. I've been a PM for about five years. Prior to that, I was a software engineer for five years and used an MBA to pivot into product management. When I first became a PM, I really struggled until I started to connect with other PMs, share advice, and learn and grow together. And I created this community because I wanted to help others do the same. And I'm very fortunate to have be joined by Jayanth, who uh, helped build this community with me. Jayanth, you want to do a quick intro? Yeah. Hey, everybody. I'm Jayanth. I'm a product manager at Capital One, working on our enterprise identity platforms. Been a PM for about uh, five years or so. And uh, just like Felix, uh, you know, I had a lot of uh, trouble breaking into product management, and I learned a lot from the people around me and wanted to help grow and create a community that uh, helps solve some of the problems that I had. And uh, I'm going to hand it up back to Felix to introduce our awesome guest speaker. All right. And today our special guest is Phyllis. Phyllis is a speaker, coach, and author with experience as a growth PM at Redfin. Her book, From Far to Freedom, is the culmination of her study of internal and external factors that cause self-doubt. We're super honored to have you here with us today, Phyllis. Uh, anything you'd like to add about your background and experience? Yeah, thank you for having me. I was a growth PM at Redfin for three years. I also had the pleasure of working on internal tools on different teams. I was In the time that I was there, I was working on five different teams and had several managers and design partners. So I've had a lot of experience compressed into a short little period of time. Awesome. We are super excited to dive into this topic with you. So just to kick it off, um, how would you describe the difference between growth PM and other product management roles? Yeah, I understand growth PM to be a lot more experimentation and data heavy. That's what I've seen from both my own experience doing consumer, <clears throat> consumer growth products management and internal tooling products management at the same company, but also from what I've heard from other people at other companies. So what that meant for me is everything is an experiment almost <laughs> sometimes to a fault. So doing a lot of AB experimentation, sometimes in certain areas, sometimes nationally, sometimes on different parts of the product, sometimes doing multiple experiments in parallel and figuring out what we're looking for based off of our hypothesis, what those results could look like. And then after we see the results based off of the sample size, trying to interpret what do we think that means? What does that inform about how we move from here? And what does that change about what we thought we understood, if anything? Awesome. Um, Phyllis, thanks for walking through how you've been thinking about product and from kind of that growth lens. Um, you know, on a similar vein, uh, as a growth product manager or in your experiences uh, working as a growth PM, how did you work to define like key objectives and goals? And how are those different from, you know, a regular PM role? Yeah, so I think it's in the title. <laughs> the goal is to grow everything as much as possible. And I think part of the challenge with that is like trying to understand what trade-offs you're willing to take and 
in the path to growth, right? Because there are certain costs to growth. First of all, literal costs, right? In terms of resourcing, but also understanding costs in terms of like the user experience, right? And understanding costs in terms of like other things that aren't necessarily growth, right? So let's say like, for example, um, we have laws. <laughs> laws <laughs> require compliance from certain companies and those requirements aren't necessarily in favor of growth. And in actuality, those laws and um, compliance regulations actually might literally oppose growth and figuring out how to manage that while still doing your job to grow the product as much as possible. And then also trying to understand like growth for whom and in what context, right? You're not just striving for growth for everybody at, at all times and figuring out like what your focus areas are and how you're going to achieve that. And like being very explicit about those focus areas because then other people if you're not explicit, we'll come around and say, well, you're not growing this other thing and you're you're supposed to be doing growth. And it's like, well, actually, <laughs> we're very much focused on growing this area in this way at the cost of these areas that we've identified in trade-offs and aligned on beforehand. I love that. And it kind of leads into our next question, which is given that you have to think about these trade-offs and what areas you want to focus on, how do you prioritize growth initiatives alongside other um, product initiatives that, you know, the rest of the team might be coming up with? So I'll speak for myself. Everyone does things a little bit differently. One of the things that I was very aggressive about when I was doing products management is being very focused on the user experience and understanding what would create an optimal user experience from what users themselves have to say, right? Doing user interviews, doing user research, using the data to inform how people are currently using their product and how we think we can optimize that better, right? So like, instead of thinking of growth as like, what can we do to maximize growth? And then that's like the whole prompt. It's like, what can we do to maximize growth in a way that benefits the user the most, right? So like maximizing both of those things simultaneously. So for example, I a project that I did my first, I don't even know, we'll call it semester because it lasted a couple months. My first semester as a PM, I was working on a growth project and the literal entire project was adding a hyperlink to sign in like it was very simple right and i think sometimes when people think about growth product management they're like ooh, like coming up with all these ingenious ways in which the product is going to reach a million dollars and it's like okay you can do that or you can just like look at the experience and think about how to make it better and then have your growth happen in ways that you might not even expect from simply doing that. I don't want to say simply because it takes a lot of work to figure out what to do in that case. But in this case, we literally added a hyperlink to sign in in our flow and saw 3% growth, right? And like our chief growth officer at the time. So what, what we do is we send experiment readouts so that everyone knows the results of experiments that we're running. And so when I sent that experiment readout, the chief growth officer responded, he's like, whoa, like that's a huge result. Like no single change has made such a large result before. And I didn't come up with anything particularly out of this world. I just made it easier to sign in because that was a difficulty in the current experience. So when I think about how to how I want to be a growth PM. It's like, I want to make the best experience possible and experience growth because I'm providing something better for people as opposed to trying to hack my way into making as much money as possible off of people. 
I love that. I think that's great. And I think, you know, you do see both ways, honestly, in, in growth roles, I think, from what I've heard from others and what I've experienced, right? Sometimes it is about mm -hmm. reducing friction. Other times it's just purely like, let's stack all these projects based on how much money we think they're going to make. And then let's prioritize them like that. Right. Um, and yeah, definitely you have those surprises where small changes can lead to big impact. Um, I do want to say on that note though, we still stack by how much money we think they're going to make. The difference is, is that I will not come up with new things that I think are a worse experience because they'll make even more money. I just try to stack all the things that make a better experience based off of the issues that I've seen today and then make more money that way. And the thing that I think is so fascinating about that is like, I, I know a lot of people are like, ooh, product managers, wow, like such amazing people who come up with such cool stuff, right? Like you think about, for example, like Spotify wrapped or think about like um, stories that are now on like every social platform. Like, yes, there are people who are coming up with like these like pieces of technology that fundamentally change how so many products look like. And there's also a lot of growth to be had in just adding some hyperlinks and making a better experience. And I don't want people to underestimate the power of that. So I, I gave my example. There's another PM that I used to work with and he experienced literally the same thing, literally the same thing. Like the most growth <laughs> that he's seen came from adding a hyperlink. And so for his context, he noticed that the web view in the app was loading pretty slowly. And he's like, what if we just... If it's loading slowly, why don't we just like link to the browser view instead of trying to open a web view and just make it faster that way? Same thing. All he added was a hyperlink to an external browser. That was the entire project. And it was like 18% growth, like insane numbers. And so when people think about growth products management, I I, I find it amusing because I, there's, there is a lot to come up with, right? Like to sit down, strategize, like put down a lot of sticky notes and like use your markers on your whiteboard to come up with something the world has never seen before. But there's a lot of opportunity in just making the current experience better in ways that are like very user-friendly and that can create so much more growth than the things that like could be hit or miss new initiatives and i'm not knocking hit or miss new initiatives i just think that they need to come together with seeing things that seem seemingly simple that's awesome i love your stories of like the smallest things that make the biggest impacts i think um you know i've personally seen that in my career as well and it's always really funny what you just don't expect uh whatsoever so i think switching gears a little bit um you know we'd love to talk to you about um, how you think about experimentation, uh, especially with, with growth product management. Um, and what we'd love to understand is, are there any like go-to methodologies or frameworks that you use uh, to test and iterate uh, when you are uh, running different experiments? Yeah, so I, over time just created my own template for how I do experiments that seem to work pretty well for me. Something that I think is really important to call out, right? Earlier we talked about all these trade-offs and goals that might come at the cost of other goals, et cetera, is defining a hypothesis for what you think you know about your product and how people use it and what people want to get out of it upfront. Because I've just seen so many times, <laughs> once people see results, they think they understand something that they didn't understand before because there's 
you know, the human bias of confirmation bias, so many other biases at play. And so being very explicit, like this is a hypothesis, this is what we think will move in reaction to the hypothesis being true. And these are the things that we want to look out for and see if they inform our current worldview or part of our worldview needs to change. And I, I think above like, so many other things having a clear hypothesis and success metrics up front is like very critical for any experimentation because i've watched so many times <laughs> so many times i've watched people see results and then say that they believed things that they didn't believe before say that they knew or thought things that they didn't know before say that we need to change things that nobody believed we needed to change before and the only thing that has helped me in those conversations is I wrote a doc two months ago, in it listed a hypothesis, in it listed success criteria. And we are now having a conversation about what I said would happen and what that meant, not a question of what we are claiming in retrospect we believe now that we've seen the results. Um, and I, the reason why I found that to be so helpful is because, for example, the I'll, I'll often be testing the same metrics, right? And across experiments, as you see different metrics move in different ways, people will start to update what they believe about the world or about our customers on an experiment by experiment basis, as opposed to like having a view of who the customer is and what they need that is, that is iterated upon and like informed by the results. And the reason why I think that can be dangerous is because if you see the results of one test and now you claim you believe something entirely differently than you believed before you saw the results and then the next test doesn't go the way you thought now you're back to deciding what you believe as opposed to actually just believing what you believe so that's very generic so i'll give like a more specific example um i had an experiment that said that we would not experience uh, actually, I'll start with the one where we did experience growth uh, on a more positive note. So I had an experiment that people did not, <laughs> were not a fan of. And I was like, well, let's just test it and see. Let's just test it. Because what I believed about our users is that they did not want certain aspects of our checkout flow and that we were creating a worse experience for them by including them. That was the hypothesis. The success metric would be we would experience growth to this degree, estimated degree, if that hypothesis is true. Everyone, when I wrote that doc, sent out that doc, planned the experiment, prioritized the experiment, was like, mm, I don't believe any of these things. That's not true. This is going to be worse. You're going to destroy the whole company. Obviously, no one said that, but that's the way it felt every time someone was like, I don't trust this. But okay, test it. We'll see, right? That's the point of a test. We test it. It's incredibly successful. <laughs> and we have in writing what I believed about the world before and what I thought would move if that belief was true. And now everyone already knew that that was going to happen. Everyone already believed that. They're like, well, well, of course, that's a worse experience, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, where was all of this, of course, when I wrote these hypotheses and when I wrote these success metrics that everyone was fighting against prioritizing this test for? Um, and then the opposite end of that, similar thing, I wrote experiment hypotheses and success metrics where I thought what I thought I knew about our users would say that this would not grow to a certain degree. And a lot of people wanted to test it because they're like, oh, no, it's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. Um, and I was like, mm, I don't 
I don't think so. I'll test it because we're creating a better user experience, but I don't think the improvement will be detectable in the flow. And the thing that was very interesting is the beauty of having access to so much data is that you, you see a lot of numbers. And so what happened was the success, success metrics that I defined stayed flat, as I said they would, as I hypothesized. I don't want to make it seem like I'm a prophet, but as I hypothesized that they would. However, a different success metric moved a lot, like very strongly. And now people are like, oh, well, this means that everything you hypothesize, like this is this changes everything. All of the hypotheses have to be like reinformed and updated and corrected. I was like, no, actually, the hypothesis was very specific. I don't think that this would add growth to our completion rate of the flow success metric. It did not add growth to the completion rate of the flow. Yes, it informed a lift in this other metric. And yes, that should change how we think about that metric and how our users, how we would measure success on that metric with our users and what that means about what they want and how they want it. But it actually does not mean that we should update this hypothesis. This hypothesis from this data still holds true. But if you don't have that in writing, now everyone believes that they thought something differently than they thought before. And that can get really confusing. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, couple of quick points, like going back to what you were talking about, kind of people's reactions. Like there's a, I think a common phrase of like success has many brothers and sisters and failures like an orphan or something like that. <laughs> I think, I think the examples you gave are like the perfect example of like that quote. Um, one thing I'm just going to like reemphasize on what you're saying is like, not only is it important to make some sort of a framework or document like before your experiment where you're going to walk through your hypothesis kind of like your your like impacted results like what you're predicting the you know change in x metric is going to be but also getting like the key alignment with your stakeholders like beforehand uh, i'm not a growth pm i work on internal platforms but uh, i've done a fair bit of experimentation in my role and that has been like the number one thing that i've seen people mess up uh, and if you don't get that alignment before you run the experiment, uh, everybody else in the room will interpret the experiment for you and it will be a mess. Yeah. So it's so important to do that like before you do anything else. Exactly. Even if the alignment is, we don't think this is gonna happen, but test it anyway. <laughs> for sure, for sure. I think uh, the Amazon like disagree and commit like principle is, is so important sometimes of, let's just try it out even if like you don't think it's going to do anything, it's, it might not hurt at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, so Phyllis, like jumping to the next question, you've, um, you've already kind of talked about how you work with like a lot of different partners in your last answer, but you know, are there any like specific ways that you collaborate with a lot of cross-functional teams? Like, especially in growth, you're not just working with engineering. You may be working with marketing, um, you know, a lot more design compared to other product managers or even like other stakeholders uh, as well. How do you work with them to execute growth initiatives uh, effectively? Yeah, the thing that I think is interesting is collaborating with cross-functional partners when it's discussed often sounds like it's something inherent to the PM role. And it's like a part of the job description and like people are gonna make sure that it happens and the structures in place to facilitate it. And that's not <laughs> that's not often what happens, right? Like the structure is very much in place for you to make sure that you talk to engineering. But for example, marketing, 
sales, like all these different parts of the organization, there might be zero structure. It actually might be incredibly difficult to collaborate with them. And yet you still will, right? Like I'll speak for myself. I still will because it is my responsibility to try to have as much success in improving their product as possible, whether there's structure and support in place for that to happen or not. So what it looked like for me to collaborate with marketing was not, you know, there's like these synergistic working sessions with marketing and sales and we're, we're all aligned and operations is on the same page. It was often a lot of me knowing that I think in order for this to be successful, I need to involve the following people, me messaging those people individually to check with them on something that I'm working on, getting their feedback on it individually. And then from there, realizing whether more collaboration is necessary or at the very least making sure, like like you said, I've aligned with those partners before starting to do something. And the, the reason why I think that like highlighting that is so important is because I think if any PM is only going to collaborate with the cross-functional partners that they have the structure and support and facilitation to collaborate with, you're going to miss so many people and there's going to be duplicative, duplicative work and there's going to be silos unless you are intentional about seeking out who needs to be on this? Who needs to be informed about this? Who do I need to ask questions about this? Who do I need to partner with this the entire way versus like just update at the end and ask at the beginning? And that was a lot of my experience with the different departments that weren't engineers, right? The, the engineering process was very much there. And even then there's a lot of things I needed to add to make that process better than it was. But for certain areas, especially marketing, my what collaboration meant was me building personal one-on-one -on -one relationships with people in those areas and making sure that i kept them informed and asked them for their feedback individually regardless of whether the process and structure and workflow to do so existed or not i love that point um and you know i think at google we're very fortunate that we have program managers that help sort of make sure certain stakeholders are included but even at a company like google it's still super easy to like inform somebody too late and then next thing you know your project's blocked <laughs> or you know so it happens and i think you know to your point which i love what you said you know asking who do i need to inform about this that's really sometimes all you have as a pm if like if you're new you haven't done a lot of projects or you're doing something new, some new type of project, it's really up to you to find the people who have the information and ask them like, okay, who else should we, who, who else should we loop in? Um, people who have more experience, who have been at the company for longer and who have seen these things go wrong enough times. Um, because yeah, at, at, as a new PM, especially, it can be very challenging for you to just be aware of like everybody you should plug in. So I think that's a really great point that you just have to be willing to ask around sometimes and, and create that web of, of, of network um, across the company. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, one- I do have another point on that. Yeah. The thing that I, I wanna highlight is just because it's happening in a one-on-one -on -one conversation that you initiated does not mean it's not like critically important. Cause I think so, you know, I brought up biases earlier. I think there's like a bias to assume like well, the things that are more supported are the things that are more important. So like if there's a certain collaboration piece that's like not necessarily happening right now, it's like not necessary, but it's useful. And from my experience, that hasn't been the case. So for example, last winter, 
it was something I worked on. And along that entire process, people were very focused on like certain people being informed. And then I was like, mm, who else? Who else needs to be informed here? And then I was like, okay, cool. Let me talk to marketing, right? So I send exactly what I just mentioned, a one-on-one -on -one message. And I'm like, hey, this is this thing I'm working on. Just wanted your thoughts on it. And then he was like, oh, okay, cool. Let's meet about this and talk about it. We meet about it. We talk about it. He's like, great. This is very useful because you are now changing my entire roadmap for next year. <laughs> and um, like fundamentally shifting a $2 million marketing model. And I was like, cool, love that for us. I don't understand how we've never talked until now. And you had no idea that I was doing this until now. And I had no idea that you had this entire model built around the thing that I'm about to remove until now. But it's like, just because it's a DM and one meeting does not mean that all you get out of it is like, oh, thank you for informing me, Phyllis. Like you might truly be like touching something that is like huge, even if the process for having a conversation about it seems very simple. So do not overlook those conversations just because they seem like small side conversations because small side conversations can change a lot of things. Awesome. One thing we want to touch on before we move on to sort of other challenges, and you touched on this a little bit, but I'm curious to kind of ask more directly. How do you think about balancing short-term wins with long-term sustainable growth uh, when you're thinking about growth strategies? So my answer here is currently, <laughs> I've seen that a lot of companies are under pressure to make short-term wins. So the reality is short-term wins are the priority. I've, right, in the three years that I was working at the same place, when I first started, I think that we made a lot more trade-offs in the long-term direction, right? Sometimes we were willing to accept slower growth or like investing in an area for a while before we saw results, et cetera. But Recently, that hasn't been the case, right? The economy is wild. Tech companies are wild. I was at a real estate company. Real estate is wild. And we have shareholders. <laughs> so the reality is, is that what was a priority was short-term wins, right? Obviously, not at the cost of, not at the measurable cost of long-term benefits, right? So for example, when we started monetizing the website, we are still not taking collaboration with advertising companies that would be a bad look for the brand, right? So like, there's still long-term considerations, but things that were long-term investments got deprioritized and everything had to have an explanation for how it is a short-term win and how long it would take to see the result of the win. And if we weren't seeing the win, whether we would pivot whether we'd move on or whether we still believe this is worth investing in and having a really good case if you think it's still worth investing in. No, that's real. You know, I think now um, you, I, I tend to see that a couple of different ways, right? I think short term can sometimes be driven at an individual level, like, hey, I just need to drive impact for myself this year, or it can be at a company level, right? It's like the company needs this impact now. Um, so yeah, that's real. That's how that's how it works in the real world. It's not always this perfect balance of like, oh, we're always thinking about the long term. <laughs> um, okay, sweet. Um, I'll hand it off to you, John, for the next section.
Yeah, I think um, next up, I think we're going to talk about potential challenges that a growth PM could face. Um, so to kick things off, what are some potential, you know, common roadblocks or challenges that uh, growth product managers could face? And, you know, how did you overcome some of those challenges? I think one of the greatest challenges that I had was trying to balance what I was trying to grow against other things that I think were important, right? So for example, I had mentioned compliance earlier. That's one example of like, we need to follow these laws, even if it is going to be a hit to growth in certain ways. Another thing that we thought a lot about is the balance of growth versus quality, right? So it's like, yes, we want a ton of people to come use our service, but who do we want to come use our service? And like, who who really counts as like a win in terms of growth, right? Like we let a lot of people through the door who end up being like poor customers to serve and creating a worse experience for our employees, right? So again, real estate company employees being agents, is that really growth that we're willing to have or increase or create? And the thing that I found was most helpful in that case is like aligning on a much higher level, not on a Phyllis level, on a much higher level, what we're willing to take and like what those trade-offs look like explicitly. So for example, um, our, as I mentioned, the growth versus quality conundrum, when we were doing something for growth at the cost of quality, making sure that at the exact level, like that was explicitly aligned on and stated. And so if we see the results and the thing that we aligned on is what happened instead of an exec arguing with Phyllis about it and exec is arguing with another exec who is responsible for those metrics about whether that was the right call. And I found that to be super helpful because I promise you, I can't speak for other PMs. As an IC, I don't want to be arguing with execs. Like, that's just not how I want to be spending my time. And I'd much prefer if y'all aligned on what trade-offs you're willing to take before I start doing any of this. And that's made my job a lot easier in that way. Um, and then another thing is just like, speaking of trade-offs, right? We're talking about the trade-offs of different metrics, trade-offs of, of like resourcing, right? Like, we want growth. Growth is not made out of nowhere. We need resourcing to make said growth. If you want these projects to move faster at a higher quality, then please inform that by funding us with more engineers, for example, funding us with more designers, for example, funding us with more analytics and research, for example, and having to be very clear on, I know that you want this result. I know we all want this result. These are the supports in place that we would need to get it. And if you say that you are not willing to fund this, this is the possible growth that you are explicitly missing out on and having those conversations as well, right? It's not just like prioritizing a project on top of another project. Sometimes it's prioritizing an engineer being on your team versus a different team at the company. And that could also be, again, a conversation to align on an exact level and very difficult because your areas might be so different that it's like, you're not, you're not comparing a million dollars to $2 million, like comparing a million dollars to like technical excellence. And it's like, who, who, who measures how to trade off where the engineer goes in that case? And it's not going to be me. It's not going to be me. So 
all in all, the thing that helped me the most is like with the really difficult conversations around trade-offs, whether those trade-offs be against certain metrics or those trade-offs be against resources, having those conversations at a much higher level rather than walking around as an IC trying to fend for yourself to get what you need. Big plus one there. I think, you know, as a, especially as an IC growth PM, <laughs> escalation is one of, you know, a key tool that you have to have in your toolkit. Uh, you have to be able to spin up a quick doc to catch executives up to speed so they can actually make a decision. Um, and I think another thing you said that was really important was around the trade-offs and the cost of growth, because at least in my experience, if I'm running an, an experiment in one geo for a small subset of users, I mean, no matter how I spin it or how I think the, the impact is going to roll, like the actual impact is almost always going to be very small in comparison to, to a change that somebody can make that applies globally to like the whole product to all users. And it's mm -hmm. very, it can be very difficult to compare, you know, the impact of an experiment to the impact of like making a change in the entire system. And so you really have to be able to articulate like, yeah, even though the impact may look small comparatively, like this is why I think it's worth putting this engineer on it or, or et cetera. But again, like it all comes down to, I think like a quick one pager, like the ability to do that is like a PM superpower, like spin up a quick doc, get people up to speed to help drive a decision. Um, so yeah, I love that you said that you said that. Um, the next section um, that we jump in, so, you know, we covered a lot of ground. We talked about strategy. We talked about execution. We talked about challenges. Um, the next section is usually where we share questions from the community. We do have one question. I think it's pretty relevant, actually, given your experience kind of going from different roles within your previous experience. Um, so people are always wondering, you know, how do I get into a growth PM role? So if someone's currently in a platform role or an internal tools role, um, what advice would you give them if they're really interested in growth and, and how to make that transition? Yeah, the thing that I, I've literally watched people do, right? So I, from, from what I've seen is getting to work with the growth PMs before you become one, right? So I've had people reach out to me from inside the company and be like, hey, I'm interested in being a PM and working on experimentation. I don't have access to that stuff. Do you? We work at the same company, right? So like they're still allowed the access. I, I don't work at Apple. So companies, people at the same company are allowed access to our experimentation information. And so literally just like showing them how I define an experiment upfront, what I'm looking for as I'm running it, what I what goes into analyzing the results after, right? And then continuing to have those conversations so that they get familiar with what that looks like. And so that that, that can be a part of, if they're ever interviewing or trying to transfer internally saying like, oh, well, I've already worked with this person on experimentation in these ways. Cause I think, especially with experiments, there's, there's certain things that I'm like, oh, like it'll be fun. You, you can make like a fun version of it without actually having the experience. I don't think experimentation is one of them because experiment results, like the whole premise is that you, you find out what is about to happen by actually doing the experiment. And that, that's just something that you only get from doing experiments. And so like building that, experience by working with a growth PM somewhere that you're currently working and trying to understand how they approach things and how you can help. And then like, who knows, right? Like I left. <laughs> now this person can say, hey, I've actually been working with Phyllis on this this entire time. Like you're looking for a backfill. That backfill could be me. I'm technically already ramped up on it. So that, that could be one way to do that. And then another way to do it is just like work on your own stuff, right? Like 
on your own company uh company your own company sounds ridiculous but like open up some store and actually change things and watch the results of those changes for yourself right and like understanding how the decisions you make look different and updating your understanding of your customers and all of that i think sometimes people really wait for experience at like google to finally say that they've done something when it's like well you could you know open a little shopify store and make your own experience by having that for yourself as well awesome i love that it's just like any advice to kind of transition even into pm period right it's like you start at your company you often have the best access to folks at your current company um, I love that advice. I've had people, you know, approach me even in my role to want to learn more about, you know, the growth, the experiments that I run and, and how I do it. So I think that's that's definitely some of the best advice. Um, OK, so again, we've covered strategy, execution, challenges. We've we've tapped into a question from our community of, of product managers. Um, now we're going to finish with something a little more fun. It's our rapid fire round. So uh, we're going to just do a couple questions and, um, you know, just hear what you think. So the first one is read versus tv or movie so read versus watch oh certainly read i like don't watch anything love it love <laughs> it okay so what's the last read that you would recommend mm, interesting because i've actually read several books in the past week and wouldn't necessarily recommend any of them. I'm actually going to recommend not a recent read, but a read that I need to reread. I've already reread it, but I will continue to reread it for the rest of my life, which is Atomic Habits. Can't recommend that book enough. It is the only, only reason I floss today. I promise you, I've been struggling with flossing my entire life. And now I floss on a daily basis. I really like, I hope James Clear is listening to this because I want him to understand how impactful that book was for me. I now, my last dentist appointment, the dentist came in and she said, I am proud of you. The dental hygienist said, you will be my easiest clean all week. I literally have those quotes as stickers on my bathroom mirror. Because to go from someone who needed a root canal to being the easiest clean all week and the dentist is proud of me, I promise you, James Clear is the only reason I floss. And I am so grateful to him. And I will always read Atomic Habits for the rest of my life. <laughs> I love it, man. That's the second time it's been recommended on the pod. So definitely uh, we're going to put that one in the notes again and just make sure people know <laughs> that this book is is a must read. All right. Next one. Beach versus mountains. Seattle. I, I'm a big fan of places that have both mountains and water in the same location. So I don't have to pick. Okay. Last trip to either a beach or the mountains. Like last hike you recommend or last beach you've been to that you recommend? Oh, so I went to Mexico for Christmas and I now want to be on a beach every Christmas. Like the idea of like, oh, white Christmas, snowy. No, like I'm not interested in any of that anymore. I was drinking a smoothie, having seafood on right on the beach. It was warm. It was beautiful. Mountains in the background. There's kites flying, kids playing. I was like, I've never seen Christmas like this. And I need my Christmas to be like this for the rest of my life. I love it. I love it. What city in Mexico? Puerto Vallarta. Oh, yeah, that's a great one. I'm actually going to be there at, in next month, next month for a wedding. Amazing. So I'm looking forward to it. That's great. All right. Last one. The last time you used Gen AI tech and for what? The last time I used it and the only time I used it is after we had talked about it. <laughs> 
y'all had seemed to really like chat GPT. So I was like, okay, fine. Let me try it. And I tried it and it was actually pretty cool. And then I did not go back to it because I think so much of the power comes from the prompts. And I just have not invested in understanding prompt engineering to really get what I want out of the experience. So that's something that I would need to do. Yeah, it definitely takes time. For context, Phyllis is talking about our own mini PM mastermind that we've been running for, I don't even know, like a year or two now, two years? It's been a while, but we connect like (laughs) monthly-ish and and trade tips within a smaller group. So yeah, shout out to Phyllis for that. Um, Okay, last one, favorite product and why? And not like an interview question, but just like legit, what's your favorite (laughs) product and, and why? Ooh, okay. So I have a lot of favorite products. I'm glad you said not like an interview question, because if I were to approach it the way I'd answer that interview question, I wouldn't have a great answer for why they're my favorite products. But DoorDash and Amazon, I think, are really great products. Um, The thing that I think is interesting, though, is like, part of what makes Amazon such a great product is what happens off of the product. That's why I was like, "Mm, don't know if it would be like the best interview question version of favorite product but I absolutely I love it so much and I've the thing that part of what I've loved is like I love using something for a long time and watching how it evolves over time and like this there's this note that I keep in my phone called pretend product and I love watching my notes about pretend product improvements actually happen to products so for example with Amazon they just I don't know why it took so long but I'm grateful that they got it but they just now added manual input for the price range versus before it was like these like preset buckets which didn't make sense to me um and then another thing that they just added is categories for wish lists right before it's just like the whole your whole wish list is just one list of all the products versus now it's like clothes books (laughs) household items which is so helpful and i'm looking forward to them just continuing to update what their product looks like and then doordash i think is absolutely gorgeous i uh, similar thing, I've loved watching them evolve over time as they add different features, right? Like the, the amount of things you can get on DoorDash now, wild. Similar thing, like a lot of the beauty of the experience happens off of the product itself, but I return all my UPS packages through DoorDash now. Like it's, I'm not just ordering food, right? You can order food, you can order alcohol, you can get gifts sent to people, you can order flowers. Now you can return your UPS packages, your FedEx packages, all of that. And so I'm a big fan of that as well. But if I were to think about like favorite product, that's like just the product, it would be Audible. I love using Audible. As I mentioned, read versus watch. I'm a big reader. Some people think audiobooks aren't real reading, but hey, if I benefit from the information regardless, clearly I read it. So I'm a huge fan of Audible. Love it. Love it. I'm also a big fan of Audible as well. Um, Okay, cool. Well, we're going to wrap up. So um, before we before we do, though, uh, just I want to give you an opportunity to share, you know, how can people find you? Anything else you want to share with our audience before you go? Um, The stage is yours. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. This has been really great. Much appreciated. And anything that I would share, I would share. This is probably more directed to people who have less experience, who are listening to podcasts and watching videos online and reading articles. I know that all the information can be overwhelming and sometimes contradictory, and it doesn't mean you're doing something wrong or that you need to seek out even more information to make sense of the information you've already received. It just means product looks different at different places with different people at different times on different products. And 
the complication of the complexity of the information you're receiving is not because you don't get something, it's because what there is to get depends on the context and that, you know, comes with experience. And then, of course, where to find me, I would love to connect with people on LinkedIn, whether it be about products management, whether it be about my book, From Fraud to Freedom, about imposter syndrome and self-doubt, or whether it just be about life, right? I'm currently on a, I guess, a, a sabbatical is what we'd call it, and I'm reading a lot, which I appreciate, so happy to talk about that too. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We're definitely going to link your book, your LinkedIn and Atomic Habits in the show notes. And with that, this has been another great conversation with the Product Management Mastermind, a global global community for product people to get advice, share advice and build relationships. We'll see you all next time. Have a good one. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Product Management Mastermind on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcasting platform. And remember to leave us a rating and review so that we can reach more listeners. We appreciate your support.